Several years ago, Julie and I found ourselves sitting in the office of a counselor for the very first time in our marriage. We were experiencing a new dynamic in our relationship because our family grew overnight through an extraordinary series of events. We had two toddlers who were placed in our home who didn't speak any English. Having no other living relatives to care for them, their grandparents were in conflict about their future care. The toddlers had just lost their mom earlier that summer, and I had just done her memorial service. And now, their father was in jail. And this was the same guy that asked me to be a witness for their marriage at a shotgun wedding. We had barely had time to process all that was going on until this counselor told us something really helpful. She said, you're grieving. I'd never thought of myself as much of a griever. Being someone who approached life rather logically, and some would say, including Julia, might say too logically, I always wondered what it would be for me to really grieve having not lost any significant people around me except maybe my grandma. In fact, I've always taken pride in my ability to not allow my emotions get in the way of getting things done. But when I sat in that counselor's office together with Julia, she said, you have experienced significant change in your lives. And part of grief is recognizing what was once was is now no longer, and, and that's okay. I don't remember much else from that hour with a counselor, but I did take that away with me. And this is one of the goals of our Emotionally Healthy Living message series. So much of our lives is about reacting and, and running from situations without paying attention to what we are really feeling. And that failure to attend to our emotions can get us into trouble. When we fail to acknowledge the power of our emotions, what we feel often spills over into our relationships with others and into our relationships with God, often in ways that do not reflect the best version of ourselves. What start, we started off this series by looking at the importance of not only being yourself, but of knowing yourself and knowing what you're feeling. And then we looked at the power of, of your past and your family and your experiences and how those shape the way you express your emotions. And over the past two weeks, we've looked at how we can, uh, the specific and powerful emotions of shame and of anger can be at work in our lives. So this week, we're going to look at the story of Job and the loss that he, he experiences and how that loss informs our stories of loss and grief. When we inevitably face grief and loss, as powerful and painful as they might be, we don't have to run from them. We don't have to be overwhelmed by them. There is a way to move through them that offers hope and strength. Job was faced with the crisis of a lifetime. We're told that he was a blameless and upright man. He feared God and shunned evil in verse 1. He offered sacrifices and prayers for his children's sins when they partied too much in verse 5. Now, if you're a believer in this paradigm of karma, we find that karma doesn't quite adequately explain Job's life, nor does it adequately explain the broken things of this world. Despite being such a respected and upright person, he loses his assets every sheep, every camel, every ox and donkey that he owned. A total of 11,500 animals died along with the servants who kept them, except for three who came back to tell him the news. And even if the, as if the loss of these possessions and people was not enough, 
Job loses his son, seven sons and three daughters when a windstorm hits the house that they're partying in. All of these events occur in a time span of a single day. But wait, there's more. We didn't read it, but the next chapter describes how his grief is further compounded as he's struck with boils from head to toe, and the only remaining family member, his wife, is urging him to curse God and just die. Now, in her mind, surely he had done something wrong and to deserve such suffering and loss. So if you stop listening at this point today, here's the one takeaway. If you think you're having a tough time in life right now, just look at Job's. Find comfort that your life couldn't be as bad as his. Now, to grieve is to recognize loss. Now, though none of us would ever wish it for ourselves, some of us do experience loss like Job. Loss that's traumatic and severe. It's costly. Loss hits us like a freight train. Our partner irreconcilably betrays our trust. We find ourselves single again. We're diagnosed with a terminal illness that changes the trajectory of the rest of our lives. Or, as the weekend reminds us, a shooter takes the lives of 12 fellow city employees in a single moment. Grief is very appropriate and necessary in moments like these. But more often, we find ourselves in a continuous process of loss. When we do well academically or socially in a smaller school and move to a big one, we find that we're no longer the big fish in the pond. No matter how hard we try to fight it, we do lose our youthfulness. We begin to lose our vision. We lose the color of our hair, and I know that well because I've been losing the color of my hair since I was five. We lose in life transitions. We lose friends and trusted neighbors who watch over our place when we move to a new city. Or as in our case, for our family, moved across the continent and across a border. We lose something when our children leave our home to go to college and we begin to experience empty nesting. We lose something when we enter into retirement. Loss and grief are partnered realities in our journey of life. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross made famous these five stages of grieving, of denial and anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We deny, no, this is not happening. Anger, this is not happening. Bargaining, come on, something else can happen, right? Depression, oh, this is happening. Acceptance, oh, this happened. Now, as helpful as these stages are to name, they're not particularly compelling for me. You see, if grief and loss are a guaranteed part of life, that means the five stages of grieving are a guaranteed part of life. Are we seriously fated to be running on this eternal Kubler-Ross hamster wheel of grief? Actually, that's supposed to be a moving gif. That's kind of a bleak way to live our lives. Perhaps there's another way. A way of grief that leads to emotional health and a flourishing life. With our grief, we can attend to it. 
we can wrestle with it and we can experience a new birth through it. When we grieve, we can attend to it. We can wrestle with that grief and experience a new birth through it. To grieve is to recognize loss. It's to name it and to name what you're feeling. In the text that we read today, Job does exactly that and more. In verse 21, he verbalizes the, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And we sang a song like that inspired by this verse earlier today. May the name of the Lord be praised. But before that, he makes his grief known in verse 20. Job tears his robe and shaves his head. And this is an ancient practice, grieving to let others know what you are feeling, the pain and the suffering, much like the more recent tradition of placing a black armband around your arm at a funeral, except we don't take it off right at the funeral. The next chapter describes how Job cries. He scrapes himself, and he sits in ashes, and Job is completely free in expressing his emotions towards God. He does not hold anything back, and people know it. Yet we're told that he does not sin. Last week, our guest speaker, Allison, reminded us similarly that we, too, can be angry and express our anger and direct our anger without sinning. Job's not the only one to, in, his, in Scripture to express his grief. The Hebrew book of prayer, known to us as the Psalms, is made up of many laments. In fact, more than half of them are laments. And laments aren't only for the weak and the powerless. Many of them are written by David, the shepherd boy who went on to become the most respected king in Israel's history. Laments are prayers that express our deepest thoughts and feelings as they are, as we feel them. In my youth, I fell prey to our Western denial of negative feelings. The Bible I used in college is, is full of circles and highlights and marks around the positive prayers found in the Psalms, and everything lament had been skipped over because I didn't know what to do with them. I missed out on the power of them to carry me through loss and grief and pain. Psalms like Psalm 44, where the psalmist says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face from us and forget our misery and oppression? Where are you, God? The lament psalm is a big WTF. God, this sucks. The Lament Psalm gives us language to express ourselves before we ever really need to use them. So that when we actually feel them, we direct these emotions that come from the bottom of our gut towards the only being in the universe that can really take them. And the living God can not only take it, he can do something about them, which we're going to find out in just a moment. We find out that even Jesus uses the Lament Psalms. When Jesus was crucified, he'd already been beaten. He's got nails driven through his feet and his hands, and he's hanging on the cross. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. It's too painful to breathe because not only is he dehydrated, in order to breathe, he has to push up on the nails driven through his legs in order to expand his lungs. He doesn't have time to think about what he wants to say, so he prays the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know if he continued praying Psalm 22, but I think they would have voiced what he was feeling. 
when the psalmist says, Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. When we find ourselves in loss and grief, attend to the pain. Name it. Don't distract yourself. Don't move on too quickly. We live in a culture addicted to painkillers and substances and distractions to drown out our discomfort. In our culture of meritocracy, we aren't good at transparency and authenticity because their grief and loss are signs of weakness as something to be taken advantage of by those around you. We don't know how to lament and name our pain well. But lament psalms, the example of Job, the example of David and other psalmists, and Jesus himself show us a path forward when we attend to our grief and to our loss. After we have named our grief, we move on to a time of wrestling. Job is accompanied by three friends in his grief. They sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. As imperfect as they are, they're pretty good friends, because I don't know if I could even sit seven hours with my friend. Grief wrestles with this mystery of why, and the book of Job is basically wrestling with the why questions from chapter 3 to chapter 41 with his friends. And it starts with Job's own words in chapter 3. In 3 verse 11, it says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Verse 20, Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Why bother God? Verse 23, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedging in? Why, 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 God? His friends try to answer the question for him over the next 35 chapters. And they, like Job's wife, think, surely Job's grief and suffering are because of some unrepented sin. And in their immature view of the world, it's because he's done something wrong. But that's not the case. Job knows it. He maintains his innocence throughout. And so he's wrestling with this reason for his grief that seems disconnected from the way that he's lived his life. And as this conversation with his friends unfolds, he's asking for a chance to stand before his creator, the living God of the universe, to ask, why? Why, big guy? I don't get it. But the fact is, he doesn't give up looking to God. And here's another wrestling that happens in our grief. There's a deep irony in our grief. In the book of Job, God seems both too close to him and too far away. On one hand, Job complains that God is watching him every moment so that he cannot even swallow his spit, as he says in 719. And on the other hand, Job finds God elusive, feeling that he cannot be found in 9 verse 11. In our grief, we wrestle with not only the reason, but our place in relationship to God and to those around us. Our grief is like this strange sensation of putting a frozen hand under warm water. You know it's frozen, and you know that that water is not boiling, but it feels like it is. It's uncomfortable. It's disorienting. That's part of what it's like to wrestle with our grief. And in our wrestling, we don't know the answers, and they don't come fast. And more often, 
they, they don't come at all. That's certainly the case for Job. God is silent through 35 chapters of back-and-forth conversation between Job and his friends. And all the while, Job maintains his innocence, and he says repeatedly to his friends, in 13 verse 3, just give me a chance, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. In our grief, isn't that what we want to do? We want what Job wants. We want to stand before God and ask, why? What reason is there behind this, God? In the end, God does end up speaking to Job in chapter 38. But over those next three chapters of rhetorical questions, the living God never answers Job's question of why. In all of Job's wrestling, even when he gets a chance to stand before the living God, we find out that it all remains a mystery. And the only thing that becomes clear to Job is that God is God and that he is not. As we go through the stages of wrestling in our grief, Job's example shows us how reasons often remain a mystery to us, at least until the life to come. We may wrestle in this life that God who is overall, uh, it's oft, uh, we may wrestle in this life and it's not easy and it's no, often longer than we hope it to be, but in turning to the God who is over all, we have deep comfort that someone knows what they're doing. And someone is writing a beautiful story that we're a part of, but we may not see the end of completely yet. Our wrestling as we grieve is not done on this shaky, uneven ground of fate and of karma and or, or of luck, but we wrestle on firm ground in the hands of the one who holds the universe in order. We attend to our grief. We wrestle in our grief. And ultimately, we experience a new birth in our grief. 2014 was a big year for Nora McInerney. On October 4th, she lost her second pregnancy. Four days later, she lost her dad. A month later, she lost her husband to brain cancer. And during this difficult season of her life, she not only had to wrestle through her own grief, but also the expectations of those around her. And when she eventually remarried, her friends and family said, oh, finally, great, she's moved on. We're so happy for her. But she made an astute observation. She caught herself using the present tense when she referred to Aaron, her first husband. And she says this, Aaron is. Aaron is, is because he still is. He's indelible. He's present for me. He's present in my marriage to Matthew because Aaron's life and death have made me who I am. So I haven't moved on. I've moved forward with him. When we experience loss and grief, we too can move forward. We can allow something to be birthed anew that only the season of grief and loss can bring. We don't often see what that is until we've passed through the darkest night of our soul. But there it is on the other side. For Job, we can see how grief birthed a new kind of relationship with God for him. Grief can lead to a deeper worship of living God, the living God as it did for Job. When he says in verse 20, May the name of the Lord be praised. All this is going on, but I want to praise you, God. 
And often loss and grief are the means by which we are raised from our stupor of believing that we are in control of more things than we actually are. As amazing as things may be, when people, when we lose people and things in our lives, there is an opportunity to recognize them as gracious gifts from the living God, the giver of life. That he has given us the privilege of knowing and enjoying. We recognize them as ways that God has formed us through those relationships and experiences. And it doesn't hurt any less to lose them, but we can carry them forward with, over time with peace and assurance with, because there is a God who is in the process of forming us into the best version of ourselves through all circumstances. Jason Rosenthal is the husband of Amy Rosenthal, who, before she passed away from cancer, wrote the viral New York Times piece in 2017 entitled, You May Want to Marry My Husband. He recently shared it on a TED Talk about his journey through grief and loss as an opportunity. He says this, I would add that beauty is also there to discover. There is a beauty in the simple moments that life has to offer, a way of seeing that world that was so much a part of Amy, his wife's DNA. Like on my morning commute, looking at the sun reflecting off of Lake Michigan, or stopping and truly seeing how the light shines at different times of the day in the house we built together. He concludes his talk with an invitation and says, I would like to offer you what I was given, a blank sheet of paper. What will you do with your intentional empty space, with your fresh start? When we journey through grief and loss, we can recognize the blank slate of opportunity before us. For Job, there is a blank slate of repentance in, verse, in chapter 42. He recognizes his presumptuousness and recognizes that the living God's purposes and plans will not fail. Job recognizes that his knowledge is limited and he realizes his place in the grand scheme of God's plans and submits to what the living God will do. And God blesses Jacob, Job beyond his expectations. The book of Job concludes that after Job had prayed for his friends, friends who give him bad advice, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, you may read this, but Job's story should not and cannot be read as a formula for how grieving with God results in material blessing in this life. It may happen, but that would do great injustice to this story. The point of the book of Job is that as uncontrolled our lives and situations may seem, as painful as our grief and loss may be, there is a God who is in control, and he bears with us through our darkest nights, and he knows what he's doing. Last summer, we had to say see you later to Ethan, who had joined our family for a year. Ethan's now back with his father, and I've been keeping in touch with his dad, and he's given me permission to share our time with Ethan. There's something that best describes how we feel. It's, I use the term heart hurt. It's a Cantonese term, samtong, which means literally heart pain. When we recall our time with him, our hearts hurt thinking of his obsession with wearing his lion costume for every day of the month. Our hearts hurt recalling the joy on his face when we see him jumping on our trampoline. Our hearts even hurt when he would try and get Evan 
12 years his senior, into trouble by claiming that Evan was in his personal space in the back seat of our car drives. And when Julie and I turn around to address the situation, he would have this cheeky smile and a wink in his eye. Yet as much as our hearts hurt, we realize that God is in control of Ethan's life, and we're not. And our time with him was merely a gift. It's a gift offered to him of being a home of stability and love, and since he's been in foster care from birth. But it's also a gift for us as we see how our love can change a precious life. It was a gift to see milestones of first words spoken and first steps taken. But we're not the masters of Ethan's destiny. We're barely masters of our own. But there is one who is. And he not only holds things in order, he does something about the cause of all grief and loss. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we heard Lauren read for us. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Not only does the living God bear with us through our grief and loss, but he undergoes the deepest loss and grief that none of us would ever hope to go through. He comes to us as God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He enters our broken world, and he experiences the loss of the most valuable relationship in the universe, the one he had with the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit since the beginning of time. And for the first moment in the entire in history, Jesus was separated from the other persons of Trinity when he died on the cross. And like Job, he was innocent in the matter. But unlike Job, the reasons for Jesus, uh, Job's, Jesus' suffering don't remain a mystery to us. The grievous loss he experiences has nothing to do with what Jesus did. Jesus loses because of what we did, because of what we and the entire human race continue to do. We, like Job, like to think that we know better than God, the God who created us and set the whole world in motion. And we, like Job, want to put God on the judgment stand to explain why. Why are the things the way they are, especially in times of grief and loss? This inclination to demand control and to demand answers is what Scripture calls sin. But God, in his infinite love and mercy, does not write us off, but he comes to us, and he loses for us. The greatest comfort that we can find in the living God is that he has sent his son Jesus to bear that loss on the cross for our sake. And when we receive this great comfort that comes through that carries us through grief and loss in this life. We, begin, we experience a new birth and a new opportunity that reaches from this life to come and into this present life. It doesn't make our loss any less painful, but it does bring hope that we can attend to and that we can wrestle with our grief. Our, grief, our new birth in Christ brings new light and hope to all that we may encounter in this life. 
And the power of Christ's own grief and loss becomes the power for our grief and loss. And so whether you are going through that now, or whether you anticipate going through it in the near future, know the power of what Christ has offered us. Amen.